Welcome to the club no one ever wanted to join. This is Refused, the unofficial podcast of Eliasm.org. Having a tough time spelling that? It's an acronym for I Live in a Sexless Marriage. Listen to stories, articles, and sometimes the dark humor experienced by those in sexless marriages here on Refused. On Eliasm.org, you'll see much wiser people than me give advice on coping with sexless marriage. And you may see my less useful posts under the name Mirror Orchid. Until then, you've suffered enough. On with the show. In this fourth installment of this essay series designed to reflect on just what we promised before entering marriage, I come to this catch-all portion, for better or worse. What's worse other than the sickness and poverty covered by the more specific undermining of excuses? In the honor essay, I considered the consequences of promising to elevate your beloved despite behavior that might be worthy of facepalm. Staying by your spouse's side after wretched lapses of judgment can be the challenge that faces you when called upon to honor vows. So what elements of worse are not encapsulated by financial destruction, crippling health issues, or shameful behavior of one's spouse? The first thought I had was self-doubt and shame. Perhaps what I've not covered is the requirement to stick with a marriage you feel has grown beyond your rights to retain. Spouses promise to stay together for better or for worse, and each spouse knows the other committed to the worse part. But they are also expected to stay put if they are on the receiving end of a marriage that's saving their ass. People lament being a burden to their loved ones. That for better, for worse part is there for you when you're on the low end, too. When folks worry about their role in life, the more common concern is possible contemplation of an exit through another part of the vows till death do us part. Suicide is a sad option for those despising their dependent state. Shy of that would be setting a spouse free. A permanent exit from a marriage without an exit from life could be a less drastic solution, but the for worse part may cover that. Maybe there can be a legal exit for the sake of allowing only one spouse to declare bankruptcy from medical bills, but in the heart and spirit, the marriage would remain. If you're expected to stay regardless of your concern that your spouse is getting a raw deal, perhaps that brings comfort if that circumstance befalls you. Maybe lean on the cherish heavily. Appreciation and gratitude are currency in marriage. We may find abundant when little else is at hand. I touched on it in the honor essay, but missed the most common reason we're tempted to break vows. The temptation grows to ignore the faults, avoid the spouse's company where the actions, or lack thereof, should be justified or softened. The need to hold one's tongue borders on the unbearable. Acceptance of minor faults can mask impatience with faults deemed untenable. Communication can be seen as futile and efforts wasted. A careful monitoring of the situation may be required to await opportunities for escape from an entrenched concern. Navigating communication that constantly emphasizes silver linings and hope to avoid cynicism could make the vow of honor 
the most challenging one for some uneven marriages. In that essay, the faults being accommodated and excused, while silver linings receive a bright spotlight, are covering up behaviors society witnesses. The big honking reason for the for worse vow isn't always seen by the public. Often, the worst of one's spouse is not seen by anyone else. An important fraction of the time, that is by design. Mistreatment behind closed doors should readily spring to mind as the for worse part of the vows and surely does for those that suffer at home. Physical abuse is a reason a great many of us will cheer on and cheer up a spouse that leaves the presence of an abuser when the vows to love, honor, and cherish are pulverized. In other essays, I speak of varying degrees of treatment and commitment. What is a deal breaker? What should be endured? What dictates each side of that decision? The most socially accepted reason to leave a marriage is physical abuse. It commonly elicits reactions to the effect of, oh, well, of course, good for you. A single slap followed by a mortified apology and promise of no recurrence. Stinging flick of the finger against the ear. Beating with a rod no thicker than your thumb. I could see a beaten spouse usually wife, but let's not leave out the battered husbands out there, calling it quits for any of those. But Lord knows a lot of spouses receive the third option and stick around anyway. The breaking point is going to be subjective, clearly. If some spouses will try to work out physical abuse issues, who can be surprised by the goal of resolving verbal or mental abuse issues? How much easier to rationalize those offenses that society condemns less often or harshly? How does one protect oneself from the frog in boiling water problem? A quick aside in an essay about this myth, someone suggested carbon monoxide poisoning. People can ignore the headaches and nausea of low levels of carbon monoxide, mistaking them for illness, then die in their bed. But Coming into a room full of carbon monoxide will tell you something is wrong instantly if you don't pass out immediately. Anyway, protecting oneself. Some spouses were brought up to believe or witness other victims and then tell themselves hitting even once is the end of things. They may have justified wiggle room after that, but the initial red line, reinforced over a long period, can strengthen resolve to find the third incident as the limit of anything considered reasonable, having given the person more leeway than they deserved. The opposite upbringing can have a spouse put up with substantial pain and actual bodily harm, yet never consider leaving. After all, their role models may have had it so much worse. Yet, here we have the vow for worse. How much worse? As stated previously, if a lawyer looked at our vows, he'd be disbarred if he didn't insist on making that little phrase a little more specific. I'm not out to suggest a limit. The person leaving for the single slap need not be told to tough it out until a bone gets broken. Similarly, a thoughtless remark about how careless a haircut is may not compare with relentless degradation of self-esteem, yet how many of us would see the single verbal slap as thin gruel on which to base a divorce. Similarly, 
black and white to the physical abuse is the condition of fidelity. A single, unsolicited, drunken tryst after a mandatory office Christmas party can break a marriage of 50 years' duration. Or a disgruntled wife may tolerate the mistress for 30 years for reasons of her own. A problem seldom spoken of, for it could endanger honor to speak of it, is physical intimacy. So, seldom spoken and out of the public eye is it that I've not heard of any degree to which anyone has ever given a pass for their divorce. A divorce explanation of, we didn't have sex for three weeks, five months, ten years, is thoroughly unlikely to be met with, oh, well, of course, good for you, as a response. The reason for intimate starvation appears to matter a great deal. On the other hand, if you are celibate because your spouse is paralyzed, there are some, many, who would harshly criticize you. After all, you're breaking your vow to love, honor, and cherish in sickness, aren't you? Degrade that a little to menopause as a medical reason, and the harshness seems largely intact. Inevitable, blameless incapacity is largely expected to be endured, though effort to remedy obstacles to intimacy can vary wildly. Drop a few rungs on the ladder to absence of libido, and while some sympathy to the refused may slip in, divorce is likely to be seen as a desperate grasp of the superficial among us, a sign of reprehensible lack of commitment. What if the opposite side of society's fervor for keeping vows? As much sympathy as I have for refused spouses, is there a point where we can objectively cry foul when divorce is announced due to frigidity demonstrated by coupling only daily? About complaints that the meatloaf was dry or leaving a single dirty fork in the sink one person's tolerable annoyance can go beyond another person's worse, and how can we pin down a person's right to feel ill-used? Behind this uncomfortable inability to determine fault or cause behind many divorces, perhaps we find the adoration for infidelity or physical abuse as gold standards for reasons. A spouse was hit, or they weren't. A spouse was faithful, or they weren't. So comforting, so concrete, so satisfying to stand firm with the wronged spouse that files papers. And how high a standard to hold for those who are miserable, but must decide for themselves if they are miserable enough. Perhaps what's needed are some of those red lines so clear to some spouses before the marriage takes place. If you've been without sex a whole week, do you take measures after a month or two? If a month or two, do you mark the anniversary with paperwork or logging on to OkCupid? If you're at the two-year mark, do you start the college plan? If you're on the receiving end of constant criticism, do you demand a compliment for every three gripes? Are you out of there if he doesn't help dent $300 off his credit card bill each month? Do you meet with that divorce lawyer if you go another week without a single dish in the dishwasher? Do you need to see her make a box of wine last longer than two days? 
Some of these straws on camels' backs may seem petty. I didn't spend much time on them. Perhaps if readers are saying, oh lordy, if only the problems were that minor, they might feel better about setting their very realistic expectations and sticking to them if the spouse blows right past them. The idea is to decide what's utterly insufferable before you actually experience it. And remember your commitment to respecting your rights, to vows being kept to the minimum degree you once told yourself was rock bottom. That's today's show. Thanks for listening. Drop by Eliasm.org to learn a whole lot more about sexless marriages and what to do about them. Or just find a sympathetic ear. That's I-L-I-A-S-M dot org. We're sorry you tuned in, but do it again soon. The intro and outro music is sampled from the instrumental Drown in Thoughts on the album Illusions by X. Tickerix, whose name I may be butchering, available at freemusicarchive.org. This episode of Refused is not brought to you by Arthur Treacher's Fish and Chips. Once in the dark, dark times of the 1960s, if Americans wanted fried fish fast, pretty much the only choice was McDonald's filet of fish If people wanted to try authentic-style fish and chips, they had to visit the United Kingdom. And in the 60s, there weren't no Ryanair, Spirit, or JetBlue to get you there. That was going to be one expensive Lent dinner. Luckily, Bob Hope enlisted Thank You Jeeves actor Arthur Treacher to bring hearty cod fillets in a beer batter to the masses. The green shingled huts popped up coast to coast to deliver weekly Friday feasts to grateful Catholics nationwide. Until Mrs. Pauls bought the chain and swapped in greasy, crumbly pollock instead of cod. Today, the airfare will be much cheaper to experience America's original Brit fish dinner. Visit Akron, Ohio, the home of the first and last Arthur Treacher's restaurant to enjoy the arguably most famous fish sandwich in history. Are you on the East Coast and you're just after the food, not the yellow lantern sign of the actual restaurant? Visit Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs in Southbound Brook, New Jersey. Nathan's has been serving Arthur Treacher's alongside its hot dogs since 2007. Hot dogs and fried fish? Why not? Arthur Treacher's Fish and Chips, the meal you cannot make at home, nor buy, except in Akron, Ohio and Southbound Brook, New Jersey. So long, you're not alone, it'll be okay need a better sign-off. In that essay, the faults being accommodated and excused while several of Pfft. <sniffs>